Have you ever wanted to play the perfect tabletop game where story beats run smoothly and there's no awkward pauses between dice rolls? Yeah, me too. But since that's impossible, I did the next best thing and novelized my Witcher tabletop game to showcase the story in its cleanest form. The result is this podcast. I'm Jacob Gerstel, and this is Tales from the Witcher. Part audiobook, part actual play, part serialized adventure, and a whole new way to vicariously enjoy tabletop games. Welcome to the world of The Witcher, where monsters roam freely and the continent is once again at war. If you were hoping to follow the plight of Geralt of Rivia, however, I'm not going to be doing that. Instead, I offer you the story of a not-so-merry band of degenerates who are making their way across the continent. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Collateral Damage You are as a mantis, clinging to a twig that can, at any moment, be cast into a roaring bonfire for fuel. Foolish men and women wretchedly convince themselves that their own schemes and wisdom will spare them from the flames. They trust in nothing but a shadow. Death outwits us all. Johann Edwin, Heretics in the Light of the Eternal Fire 1. The tower was quiet, thankfully. No sounds of wailing babies or grumbling parents woken up in the middle of a pleasant dream. Ethramel walked by the walls and scribed with fake runes he created to scare superstitious Dwan away. He cackled at the wall, held his hand against it to steady himself until the dizziness paused, and traced his fingers along the meaningless symbols. He recalled Signet's three illusory knights standing guard in front of the door to the courtyard and smiled. Great sorcerers think alike, Signet. Ethramel said, and laughed again. Breaking Lonkoff's curse felt like a hundred years ago. Signet's tower had become Ethramel's tower, but even now it didn't feel like home. The tower felt as foreign as the first time Ethramel laid eyes on it. He stumbled across the courtyard. He had spent half the evening at the horseshoe, getting drunk off his ass. He'd yet to come across a bad thought that couldn't be banished with a few glasses of vodka and he hadn't spared a single thought about his estranged son or abandoned companions. Except for now, he supposed. Ethramel frowned. Why do I teleport here of all places every time I run away, he thought, struggling to grab the door handle. It kept shifting slightly. His hand finally found its mark, and he nearly fell on his face when he opened the door. He slammed the door shut. All was blessedly quiet. He started up the tower steps watching his feet very carefully. He expected to find Sodrain and Thema, the new elven parents, fast asleep in bed, their child Aelin following suit in her crib. Instead, he only found Sodrain and Aelin asleep. Thema was sitting at the only desk, reading a book by candlelight. She looked at Ethramel, and, judging by her squinting expression, deemed him a sorry sight. The sorcerer didn't blame her. He had a vague memory of puking on the street as he left the horseshoe, and he was sure some of the vomit dried on his shirt. The room also felt unbearably hot, and he could feel sweat soaking his armpits. Welcome back, again, Thema said. She closed the book. To what do we owe the pleasure this time? You know, the usual. Tactically retreating, Ethramel slurred, 
He frowned again. More sad thoughts. I can smell the vodka from here. Thema wrinkled her nose and pointed to a bulging water skin at the end of the desk and said, You should drink that. Ethramel grimaced, swiped their water skin, and drank it all in one go. He tossed it onto the desk and gave a shaking stage bow. Better? You tell me. Her cold tone rankled Ethramel. You are a guest in my home. Why are you making me feel like I'm intruding? Lower your voice, Thema whispered, and take a seat. You're making an ass of yourself. No, Ethramel said, crossing his arms. If you want to lecture me, you can do it where I stand. Thema spoke, and Ethramel had difficulty distinguishing the words, but he knew how it made him feel, like a failure, an obvious disappointment. Respectfully, Ethramel murmured as he walked past Thema and ambled up the stairs, I disagree. If Thema said any more, Ethramel didn't hear it. He climbed the final set of steps to his own bedless quarters. He sat in the corner of the room, pulled his legs to his chest, tilted his head back, and went to sleep. Morning came sooner than Ethramel would have liked. Well, calling it morning was charitable. The sky had the purple hue of plum, signaling the rising sun. The baby's cries woke him up, of course. Ethramel sighed, rubbed his stiff neck, and stood up with a grunt. His stomach roiled and remembering his patchwork conversation made him feel as if he tripped at the starting line of a big race. He sighed, rubbed his eyes, and made his way downstairs. Sodrain was bouncing Aelin on his knee, cooing and raking the baby's fine white hair with his fingers. Thema was sitting in bed. Both looked very tired. They exchanged worried glances upon seeing Ethramel. They recovered, and Sodrain gave a tired grin. I'm starting to see why our people become infertile so young. No one said repopulating the Ansaid was an easy job, kin. Ethramel swiped a water skin on the nearby table, frowning when he found it empty. But I know you two are well suited for the task. Do you plan on staying for the day? Thema asked. Sodrain gave her another worried glance that Ethramel pretended not to see. Yes, actually. I wish to speak with Adro and Ranith. Were they... uh... Did I speak with them in the tower last night? No, Thema said. I think they're in town, Sodrain said, waving a straw-stuffed doll in front of Aelin, who clapped and squealed with delight. Then that's where I'll be. Ethramel paused, considered. If I insulted you in any way last night, Thema, I am sorry. Another quick glance, and a nod from Sodrain. Thema scratched her head and spoke in an odd tempo, as if trying to remember a speech. You've done much more than insult me, Ethramel. You've abandoned us. You offered us a place to stay, but have done little to keep us safe. We never know where you are, or where you're running off to next. You only come back here when you're in trouble, which puts us all in danger. Have you ever thought about that? Ethramel said nothing. No, I suppose not. When Sodrain and I first saw you in Blagren, at Shenny's camp, we thought the world of you. You spoke passionately of Aelorin's sacrifice two hundred years ago. I thought you were going to be a savior for our people, an elven sorcerer here to lift the Scoia'tael out of failure. I've heard that more times than you can imagine, Ethramel said. I've disappointed more of our kin than you've ever met. Yes, and I don't suspect that will change, Thema said. Likely not. I'm going into town. Wait, Sodrin said as Ethramel made his way down the stairs. Would you mind picking up some sheep's milk while you're there? It's Aelin's favorite. 
Ethramel almost couldn't believe Saudrain's nerve. To ask him a favor after chewing him out, Ethramel had every right to say no. I'll think about it, he said, and left. In the day, Lonkoff appeared much the same as Ethramel remembered when it suffered under Signet's curse. Only there were Nilfgaardians keeping guard now, instead of Adernians. They didn't question Ethramel as he stopped at the gate, which he found refreshing. He passed through the town market slowly, keeping an eye out for his elven companions and untangling his own thoughts and emotions. Ethramel saw no signs of Adro or Raneth, and chose to bide his time at the horseshoe. He asked the bartender if he had seen them, and he said he had not. The bartender offered Ethramel a drink, and he refused. Fortune smiled on the sorcerer two hours later, as Adro and Raneth, two elves who were regularly risking their lives to help former Scoyatel fighters, walked into the tavern. Ethramel hailed them over, and their drawn faces lit up. Look who's back, Adro said, taking a seat next to the sorcerer. Have you ever heard of sending a note ahead of time? We could have prepared a better welcome. I like to surprise people, Ethramel said with a wave of his hand. Have you a moment to talk, kin? Raneth nodded and motioned to the bartender. Of course, let's have a drink. None for me, thanks. Ethramel's stomach churned at the thought of vodka or ale. He stifled an acidic burp. You've both been very helpful, and I don't think I've ever properly thanked you. When I asked you to help some of Shenny's commando remain hidden in the tower, you didn't hesitate. We never would for kin, Raneth said, especially kin that have fought for our people's freedom. Of course, so I was hoping it wouldn't be too much for me to ask another favor. Adro drummed his index fingers on the bar. Depends on the favor. I have some companions who are in a tight spot, Ethramel said. I managed to get out, and had a good mind to leave the whole messy business behind. But I don't think I can do that this time. I need help saving them. The two elves exchanged glances with each other that Ethramel couldn't read. If he would venture a guess, he'd say they looked skeptical. But Raneth said, These companions... Are they unsaid? Dwan, sorry to say, and a Vatgern. They're not the kindest lot, but they're my lot. Now I know you two are ex-Scoyatel, so I thought. Adro sucked air through his teeth and said, Easy there. That's a strong assumption to say out loud. But a correct one, yes? Raneth ran a hand through his fair hair and said, Yes, it's correct. What kind of rescue are we talking about? I'm still working on that part. But with you two at my side, I figure we might have a chance at succeeding. Adro scratched his chin. Will doing this help our people, Ethramel? The sorcerer considered for a moment. Yes, I think it will. If just because we'll help kill an army of Dwan. Isn't that a reward in itself? Adro and Raneth grinned. Aye, Raneth said. That's not a bad reward at all. If you helped me, I'd be forever in your debt. Ethramel stood up. Where are you going? Adro asked. Ethramel gave a crooked grin. I've got to buy some milk. 2. The manacles chafed Zevo's wrists. He rubbed them with a vain hope that the chains would mysteriously break and he could grab his weapons and make the Hans of regret not killing him. No such luck, it seemed. The Witcher watched Lear and Jay from the other end of the campfire, calmly stirring the pot of bubbling mushroom stew. He scooped some with the wooden spoon, blew on it, tasted it, and nodded. Needs a pinch of salt, he said to no one. He produced a small burlap pouch from his bag. Zevo watched him sprinkle the salt. 
It had been a long day of marching, and everyone was grateful for the rest when they finally stopped. The forty or so soldiers split into six or seven close-clustered campfires at the base of a grassy hill. Zevoin Nulef were sat at the Hansa's campfire, right in the center of all the resting soldiers. Leo and Jafe doled out stew into chipped earthenware bowls and handed them to the rest of the Hansa, then to the prisoners. Zevo's arms ached as he brought the wooden spoon to his mouth. He hated to admit that the mushroom stew tasted pretty good. What's this prison like? Nulef asked, if only to make conversation. Proltier wiped his mouth with the back of his sleeve and grinned. I've heard it's practically a paradise, set in a nice little farming town, in a keep with guards that feed you enough and don't cause you trouble if you do the same. We should all be so lucky to be imprisoned there, really. You're always welcome to join us, Zevo scowled. Afraid not, Delbra said. We may rest a day or two in town, but we've got some hard times ahead of us. Leading an army to overthrow a kingdom, Zevo said. Is that the worst thing? Rissa the elf asked. She tipped the bowl back and slurped the remainder of the stew, allowing commoners to have a say in how everything is run. Nulif narrowed her eyes. You don't actually believe the gutter rebellion can succeed, do you? With Arthur leading us, we do, Proltier said, looking around at the campfires surrounding them. Everyone here is committed to the cause. Zevo spat. I note your disagreement, the gnome said. Why so resistant to revolution, Zevo? Surely a witcher's life would be easier without all the monarchies and nobles telling everyone what to do. That's not like to change, Zevo said. You overthrow a monarch, then what? New leaders never do anything for witchers. I'll still get spit on the same amount. I admit I've always been curious, Leonjaf said, serving him more stew. Why you are always so adamant to sticking to this so-called path, Zevo. Surely you wouldn't perish if you gave witchering up. Witchers don't retire, Zevo said flatly. We do our job and die with our boots on. That's how it's always been. I'm not foolhardy enough to think I can change that. Leon Jafe has a point, though, Delbra said. You could always retire and become, I don't know, a farmer or something. Or you could have stayed with us in Nilfgaard, Brissa added. Zevo's nostrils flared. I didn't realize it was that simple. And will becoming a farmer reverse the emotional castration I endured as a child? Will it erase the decade of indoctrination instilled in me, telling me that the only use I have is as a monster slayer? Will it give me back my fingers, or my eye, or take away the unpleasant memories gathered up over a century? Will it make the farmers see me as one of their own? No, I didn't think so. Well, Proltier said after a moment of silence, agree to disagree. Leon Jafe kicked dirt onto the fire and said, No more talking. It's time to rest. Zevo had slept or meditated in a number of uncomfortable places over his life. In boglands, dried moats, up in trees to escape predators, and even a cramped tomb once or twice. But he had not slept while manacled in a long, long time. Since he first started witchering, in fact. Lying in the wet grass, rolling from side to side in a vain attempt to get comfortable, Zevo was reminded of his two years of captivity with Stesco Dror. Those were the worst nights he'd ever had, chained to the wall like a murderer awaiting execution. These memories made it impossible for Zevo to find steady concentration. He did not meditate that night. His eyes squinted with exhaustion at the first morning light. He and Nulif were given a rasher of salted pork that morning, and the march continued. 
Within two hours, Zephyr's breath started to become ragged. His knees buckled with each step up a hill, and he started to feel a blister forming on the heel of his left foot. Zevor had not gotten a blister for over a century, and the sting of pain with each step irked him. He imagined slicing off the bump of skin with his knife. By midday, Zevo was butted by the rearguard soldier's spears to keep him from falling behind. Zevo felt little anger at this. The only thing he felt was apathy and a deep desire to sleep, not to meditate. He imagined falling into a feather bed and feeling his arms and legs go limp. Zevo would have traded a big toe to get that then and there. What's going on? Nulip whispered. She had slowed her pace to keep even with the Witcher. Do you want them to drag you the rest of the way? No, Zevo said. He would have given another finger to be riding Diablo, sitting in the oiled and broken-in leather saddle. But I don't want to keep moving either. A soldier prodded Zevo's shoulder with his spear butt. Keep it moving. It'll be okay, Zevo, Nulip said. We'll get there soon. Just keep moving. Thankfully, the hills leveled out quickly and became pastoral farmland, interspersed with many forests. The road they settled on was remarkably well-maintained, with no cracks or unkempt grass on the side. Zevo, not for the first time that day, wondered where in the hell they were. The town came into view within an hour. To the witcher's surprise, it really did look lovely. The roads were neat and tidy, the wooden houses and shops gleamed with a fresh coat of paint, and even looked the appropriate size for a farming town. Not too big, but not too small. The only thing that stood out was the keep on the top of the hill on the east side of town. That was the only building that looked to be older than five years. Its heavy stones were weathered, and ivy clung to its base like barnacles to rock. These peaceful townfolk did not pay the forty-some soldiers and their prisoners any mind as they bustled to and fro. At most, Zevo earned a few sideways glances. The keep on the hill started casting a long shadow as they marched towards it. It had the look of a castle that withstood years of siege, and was half torn down in the process. The chipped crenellations at the top obscured the handful of patrolling guards. The Hansa stopped the soldiers and walked up the hill on their own. The rusted gate pulled up, and ten minutes later, the Hansa re-emerged with a man in his mid-sixties, with a potbelly and a bushy white mustache. His round face and reddened cheeks made him look like an amiable grandfather. His eyes were blue and watery, and they regarded the prisoners with a calm steadiness. The old man nodded and said, Welcome to the town of Houtsburg. My name is Will, and I'll be your head jailer. I'll treat you well, make sure you have enough food, and won't cause you any trouble if you do the same. It was dark and cool inside of the keep. Will led Zevo and Nulif down a stone hallway. Surprisingly, the interior of the keep looked to be in much better condition than the exterior. The stone walls and floors were dry and well lit. The windows, similarly, provided light and a nice view of the quaint little town below. They were led down a set of stone stairs, and Zevo half expected the dungeon to be wet and moldy and covered in blue-gray lichen, but it was just as dry and unadorned as the rest of the keep. Six jail cells lined the left half of the room. Each cell had a stuffed mattress in the corner. Steel bars, running parallel with the walls, separated each cell, allowing everyone to see each other and speak, but not provide enough space to walk through. There were no windows, but torches really brightened the place up. 
they were split into individual cells. Nulif, then Zevo to her left, next to another occupied cell with a man sleeping on the mattress. Zevo collapsed onto his own mattress, sending stray and brittle bits of straw into the air, but it felt nothing like he imagined. His limbs did not go limp, and sleep did not overtake him. In fact, he felt even more tense than he did on the march. Will whispered something to the Hansa, who went upstairs. He then looked back and said, I do hope you will make the best of it. Zevo inspected his cell after Will and the Hansa left. Nulif watched him with disinterest. There wasn't anything more than a mattress in one corner and a wooden bucket for them to do their business. The Witcher pulled on the steel bars. They felt solid. A guard walked down the hallway and disappeared. Zevo sighed and sat on his bed. Might be difficult to break that door open, even with my signs, he whispered. There must be some way, Nulif said. The man sleeping in the cell next to Zevo rustled. He sat up and rubbed his eyes. The man's beard was longer and his hair was more unkempt, but Zevo recognized him all the same. It was Armin, the architect that Jeremiah and Yana abducted from a lander. The man they carted to the Pontar River as a prisoner, only to lose him. The Witcher regarded the man with a squinting yellow eye. Armin looked at Zevo, then curled up on his bed and rolled over. That'll do it for this episode of Tales from the Witcher. This podcast is written and produced by Jacob Gerstel. The Witcher novels are by Andrzej Zipkowski, The Witcher games are by CD Projekt Red, and The Witcher tabletop RPG is by R. Talsorian Games. The music is by Eric Matias at soundimage.org. Be sure to leave a rating and a review, and to spread the word of this podcast far and wide. You can follow the podcast at Tales Witcher Pod on X or at talesfromthewitcher.buzzsprout.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you again next week.